At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. So glad to see all of you here this morning. If you would, please take out the Word of God and in it turn to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter number 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you. You could grab that Bible, turn to page 14 in it, and you would find yourself parked at Matthew 17. You know, one of the most popular reality TV shows in our culture is the show Fixer Upper. How many people have seen Fixer Upper? So, oh, look at the hands that are out there. For those of you who've never seen it, it is a reality show where they are involved in renovating older homes in Waco, Texas. And the hosts are Chip and Joanna Gaines. And uh, Chip is the contractor, the renovator, and Joanna is the designer and the decorator. But here's what happens in that program. At the very end of the program, they have the big reveal. And they put together this mural that shows the original exterior of the home, and it's on wheels, and then they separate it. And then you have the homeowners who see the outside of their new home, and they're always just astounded when the big reveal happens. Well, as astounding as that transformation can be in those homes on the Fixer Upper show, it pales in comparison to the transformation that happens on a high mountain in Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 17. Because here we see a reveal which we call the transfiguration of Jesus. I like to call it the ultimate reveal. And we have been involved in a series of messages for the last two weeks entitled Reveal from Matthew 16 and 17, where we're seeing the true identity of Jesus being revealed in special ways. And this morning we come to the event of the transfiguration. And personally, I think this event is greatly encouraging and greatly confirming to us, especially when we find ourselves down in the low valley, when we are discouraged and we face difficult circumstances. So if you have your Bibles ready to go, I would like to read chapter 17, verses 1 to 13, invite you to follow along as I read. It says, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one 
until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And his disciples asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is gonna suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that Jesus had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So what we want to do in our time together now is we want to zoom in on what I call the ultimate reveal. And we're going to do that by looking at four things, four elements. We're going to see the prediction of all of this in chapter 16 and verse 28, the last verse of chapter 16. Then we're going to see the transfiguration in the first eight verses of chapter 17. We're going to look at the restriction that is given in verse 9. And then we're going to look at the clarification that Jesus shares in verses 10 to 13. So that's our plan. That's where we're going this morning. So let's begin by taking a step back and looking at the prediction of this event. Now, in order to really do that, we need to drop back a few verses to chapter 16 and verse 21. You might remember that here Jesus is talking to the whole group of disciples, and he says he began to show them, it says there, that his disciples, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And if you remember what happens, Peter basically goes, no way, no way, Lord, that's too disturbing, that's too discouraging, that doesn't seem fair, it just seems intolerable that such a thing would occur. And Jesus' basic response back is, wait a minute, this is part of God's plan for me. So hearing all of that, Jesus understood the distress that the disciples would feel. So then he makes this prediction in verse 28. He says, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here, who's standing here? It would be the group of the disciples and Jesus. He says, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You ever have to face times that are dark and difficult? We all go, absolutely. We've been there many a times. Well, when you find yourselves in those dark and difficult times, where do you find encouragement? Where do you go to get some encouragement? And one place we can go is Matthew chapter 17. This is one of the most dramatic events in the life of Christ. It is highly, highly dramatic. You know, when you look at the crucifixion, that is a dramatic event. You look at the resurrection, that is a dramatic event. And in my opinion, the transfiguration is right behind that as a dramatic event. And part of the purpose of this event is to give some encouragement to the disciples as they were facing this news that was very dark and very difficult. And I believe this is a gift, Matthew 17, this event, not only to them, but it's a gift to us to give us encouragement also. Let your eyes go back to verse 28 there. He says, there are some standing here. He's talking in A.D. 32. He says, there's some of you who are hearing my voice who will not taste death. What a vivid picture that is. You know, death being a poison potion 
that we're all going to taste. He said, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What God is going to do is he's going to flip the switch. He's going to give them a preview of the future foretaste of glory that is one day going to be revealed to the entire universe. All creation will one day see and know this, but he says, some of you are going to see it. And then that leads us with just that little prediction to the actual transfiguration. And you notice in verse 1 of chapter 17, it says, six days later. Now, you may not be aware of it, but this is one of those places that the Bible critics like to hop up and go, air in the Bible, air in the Bible. Because here in Matthew 17, it says six days later. In the parallel in Mark chapter 9, it says six days later. But in the parallel in Luke 9, it says this, about eight days later, you know, approximately eight days later. And right away, those critics are going, you see, you have six, you have six, you have eight. Oh, man, the Bible, it's so full of errors. Well, not really, because there's two ways to look at all of this. There could have been, you know, the actual six days from when he predicted this would happen, Or you could include those six days plus the day of the prediction and the day of the event, and you come out with about the same amount of time. So this is not indication of an error in Scripture. But what happens? It says six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. They are the sum that he'd mentioned back in verse 28 of the previous chapter. And he takes them up onto a high mountain. If you look at the parallels, it's kind of interesting to look at the parallels here. Uh, Luke chapter 9 tells us that Jesus took these three with him to go up on the mountain to pray. It also tells us that Peter, James, and John fell asleep. Remember, that's going to happen later on in the Garden of Gethsemane also. They are apparently sleeping, and what happens is that Jesus, verse 2, was transfigured before them. Uh, the, the verb in the original language here is metamorpho, which is M-E-T-A-M-O-R-P-H-O-O. It literally means to be transformed. You know, my son's quite a bit older now, married and has three children, but when my son was a toddler, one of the newest things that came out was something called Transformers. And he wanted Transformers, and so we bought him Transformers. And in those early times, you know, you had a Transformer that would look like a car, but then you could begin to slowly pull parts around, and it would transform into a robotic fighter. And we have a similar thing happening. You have Jesus as a man in his humanity, and suddenly he is transformed into the God of glory right before their eyes. And we don't really know. It doesn't give us a lot of detail, but apparently there was enough commotion going on that Peter, James, and John woke up. And what do they see? They see Jesus with his face shining like the sun. And it goes on to say, his garments became white as light. If you go over to the Mark passage, it says his garment, his clothes became radiant. Uh, They were blinding. They were dazzling. Interesting comment that Mark adds. He says, his clothing was exceedingly white as no launderer could ever whiten it. 
And we see a lot of those TV commercials, right? about things that will brighten our clothes and whiten our clothes. And, you know, if you get the Tide Pods, you're going to be super white. If you get the OxyClean, it's going to be super white. But there was no product ever invented then or now that could make clothing this bright. In the Luke passage, it says his clothing was as bright as a flash of lightning. And you can see that they're just searching for words to describe what they were seeing. You know, are you ever on that drive in an early morning where you know that you have the sun shining right in your face? Or maybe it's, it's sunset time and you're driving and that sun is just blinding. That's the kind of thing they're searching for. Or, or maybe you're in this totally dark room. It's black in there and then somebody flips on the light, you know, and you're kind of going, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's what they're trying to communicate. What did Jesus really look like? Well, if you go to the book of the Revelation, the last book of the Bible, in chapter number one, there's a longer description of Jesus there when he's pictured in his glory. And and he's described there in Revelation one as having eyes that were a flame of fire. His feet, it says, were glowing like molten metal in a furnace. I mean, they're just reaching for this kind of description. You know, at the end of the book of the Revelation in chapter number 21 and verse 23, it talks about how the new heavens and the new earth are going to come along. The old heavens and the old earth are going to be destroyed. And in the new heavens and the new earth, it says there's not going to be any sun. There's not going to be any moon. How are we going to see anything? Well, it says that the glory of God is going to illumine the new heavens and the new earth. And it actually says the lamp is the lamb. And this is part of what they are seeing. See, what's going to happen in the future, they're seeing a glimpse of it. Now, remember what's going on. Peter, James, and John are facing difficult, discouraging circumstances. Jesus is talking about going to Jerusalem and dying. They are facing dark and dreary times. And when we are in the middle of difficult and discouraging circumstances, and we're in the middle of dark and dreary times, those things tend to overshadow our perspective. And that was what they were experiencing. That's what we experience. But one thing we need to remember is those difficult, discouraging, dark, and dreary times are temporary. They are temporary. And there is a glorious day ahead. That's part of what this event teaches us. And by the way, it gets even more intriguing because in verse 3, Suddenly you see Moses and Elijah are also there and they're talking with Jesus. You know, you you remember Moses. I mean, he had died back before entering the promised land and God had secretly buried his body. And then you have Elijah who was supernaturally taken directly to heaven. And these two guys are there talking with Jesus. Moses seems to be a representative of the law. Elijah seems to be a representative of the prophets. He was one of the most preeminent prophet. And you have Moses and Elijah, and they're in a conversation with Jesus. The implication seems to be that Jesus is going to fulfill all that the law pointed to, and that Jesus is going to fulfill all that the prophets predicted related to the Messiah. 
But you got the three of them. And they're talking. Wouldn't you have liked to eavesdrop on that conversation? What were they discussing? They were not discussing that, oh, you just edged out OSU. (laughs) As much as we would like to think. That was part of the conversation. It wasn't. I mean, just, just, I mean, think about it for a moment, all right? Put yourselves in their shoes. I mean, here you have Jesus with this brightness and this luminous atmosphere all around him. You have Moses who'd been gone for 14 centuries off of the planet. And you have Elijah who'd been gone for 900 years off of the planet. I find it kind of interesting that somehow we must in heaven and in eternity retain our name and our identity as a person. You know, I don't think they were showing up with some kind of placard around Moses, you know, where he had Moses written on his sweatshirt or something. Somehow we retain our identity. It doesn't really tell us how we know that, but that's, we can tell who Moses is and who Elijah is. And what are they talking about? What are they talking about? You know, we have a hint given to us in the gospel of Luke In the ninth chapter, in the 31st verse, it says this. He said, they were talking about Jesus' departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They were discussing the events that were soon to follow. Oh, yeah, Jesus, you're going to Jerusalem. We know you're going to die there. And then uh, after three days, you're going to rise again from the dead. And, and then after a period of time, you're going to appear to a bunch of people. And then you're going to ascend up into heaven. And, and the angels are going to say, just the same way that he ascended, he's also going to descend again in the future and come back. And they're having this discussion about God's plan and how it's working out. And while this discussion is going on, there's one person who cannot be quiet. And that is our favorite friend, Peter, And Peter opens up his mouth, and he says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You know, someone has said there's two kinds of speakers, those who have something to say and those who have to say something. And Peter falls into that second category. And he said, you know what I want to do? I want to erect three tents. I want to, this is too cool. This is too awesome. We want to prolong this. We want to stay a while. This is the way that it ought to be. And so let's just worship here. Let's bring on the glory right now. Let's just live it out right now. But there's something that Peter didn't fully understand yet, and that is there was a pattern in Jesus' life, and the pattern was there will be suffering, and then there will be Glory which, by the way, is the same for the followers of Jesus, that there will be some suffering, and then there will be glory. You know, we follow him. Why should we expect it to be different in our own life? Now, now, as, as much as we could climb on Peter's back here, we need to cut him some slack. I mean, one of the things that, that is a big mistake, he, he's treating them as equals. You know, Jesus, I'll do one for you and one for Elijah and one, and for, one for Moses. I mean, you know, well, and you're like, wait a minute now, you're putting the three of them on the same level? And so we can, we can get on his back a little bit for it, but we need to cut him a little bit of slack. We, we learn from Mark chapter 9, it says this about Peter. Peter didn't know what to say. I mean, all this stuff's happening. He didn't know what to say. In fact, in Luke 9, it says he didn't even realize what he was saying when he said it. 
He was befuddled. He was bumfuzzled. He didn't know how to handle it. And he just always wanted to solve things by opening his mouth. And so he opened his mouth. But notice what happens. It's a little comical. While he was still speaking, probably had a bunch of other things he was going to say here, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Luke says this incredibly bright cloud just enveloped them. What was this? Well, most believe this was the Shekinah glory from the Old Testament era, and it had been 600 years since the Shekinah glory had appeared in Israel. And so this bright cloud, the Shekinah of glory, envelops them. And then notice, a voice out of the cloud said, this, I don't know how this was said, but it had to be scary. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Have you noticed how at times God just wants us to listen? You ever been through that kind of era in your life? Just listen to him. If he says it's necessary to go to Jerusalem, believe it, Peter. If he has a plan that you do not understand, submit to it, Peter. And there's times when we have the same message from God. Remember, he's in the face of some pretty dark circumstances. How do they react? Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and they were terrified, totally terrified. It's interesting, when the glory of God gets revealed, that seems to be the human reaction to it. In the first chapter of the book of the Revelation, when John gets this similar kind of vision of the glory of the person of Christ, John says this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. I went boom right down. And yet Jesus, interestingly enough, there in Revelation 1, he steps up and he places his right hand on John. He says to John, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I have the keys to death in Hades. And we see a very similar thing happening right here in Matthew 17, verse 7. Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up, and don't be afraid. And then lifting up their eyes, you know, daring to take a peek, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Now, men and women, remember what this is. God revealed a foretaste of what's going to happen one day. There is a day coming when it will be evident to everyone, when it would be evident to all of creation who Jesus Christ really is. And they got that, you know, the curtain was pulled back for just a moment. And this event became riveted in their memory. When you look at Peter's second letter, here's what he says. He says, we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the power of our Lord Jesus Christ and his coming again. He said, we have seen his majestic splendor with our own eyes. And he received honor and glory from God the Father when God's glorious, majestic voice called down from heaven. We ourselves heard the voice when we were with him on the holy mountain. 
This was the ultimate reveal. So that is the transfiguration. Look at the restriction that is given in verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, I'm sure their heads are just spinning around and around, Jesus commanded them and said, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. He says, I'm giving a verbal quarantine. I don't want you to tell anybody about this until after I have risen from the dead. Why does he say that? Well, part of the reason why I think he said it, we learn this from the Gospel of Mark, is they were just still puzzled by all this. I mean, they're trying to process all this in their head. And when he says there, tell this vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead, it tells us that Peter, James, and John turned to one another and said, what does Jesus mean by raising from the dead? They just weren't getting the plan. They were so oriented to the fact that Jesus was going to bring this astonishing kingdom. They just couldn't really completely understand the whole process. That's part of the reason why he gave the verbal quarantine. I think another part of it is he didn't want to distract from the plan. The plan is the same as it had been from the moment he came to the planet. He was here to conquer sin and death, to die for your sins and my sins. And he didn't want anything distracting from that. And then you have an interesting follow-up, which is the clarification in verses 10 to 13. The disciples were saying then, well, wait a second now, the scribes, they say that Elijah must come first. How does that work? Oh, we just saw Elijah. Uh, we're not following here, Lord, at all. And so Jesus answers and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things, but I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they wished, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples got this part of it. They understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. You know, the teaching was, and you see this in the last three verses of the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, was first Elijah would come, and then Messiah would come. And Jesus says, Elijah is coming. And Elijah will restore all things. And here he's basically implying, it would be like Elijah. This is an allusion to the second coming. Don't think it's not going to happen. And I'm going to be like Elijah in that I am going to restore all things. And then in verse 12, he also says, at the same time, Elijah's already been here and he's referring to John the Baptist. This, men and women, is a big reveal This is the ultimate reveal. Now, here's one I want us to to catch. The big reveal, the ultimate reveal, confirms and assures us of four things. Don't miss this. The transfiguration confirms and assures that Jesus is truly God. If there was any doubt about it, they got it. The transfiguration confirms and assures that the future eternal kingdom is coming beyond the grave. We have had a peek at Old Testament saints who, in Moses' case, had been died for centuries and centuries and centuries, had died, and we see them alive centuries later. The big reveal, the ultimate reveal, confirms and assures, number three, that the predictions and promises of God can be counted on. Don't ever doubt it. Don't ever doubt it. 
And then the big reveal, this ultimate reveal, confirms and assures, number four, that one day Jesus will return in all his glory. It's going to happen. It will happen. It will happen. Now, I, I want to I think about things from a little different angle. I want to talk a little bit about life application. What should this passage mean for next week? What should it mean for next month? I'm going to suggest two things. The first life application is this. Remember what's coming. You know, we may very soon face pain and suffering, darkness and difficulty. We certainly will do that eventually if we're not in the middle of it right now, pain and suffering and darkness and difficulty. And when you're in that situation, you know what it's like. I've been through that. I've been through cancer a couple of times. It might appear like evil is winning. Sometimes when you look at everything that's going on in the world, you you begin to feel that way. But what we need to remember is there is a future kingdom that is ahead. There is a time coming, as it is described in the book of the Revelation, chapter 19 and verse 11, when heaven is going to split open, when someone who is called faithful and true, who has on his robe and written on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords, is going to step out and walk into this world And every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That time is coming. Yeah, that's an amen for sure. And here's what's interesting about it. Paul writes about it in Colossians 3, 4. He says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? (laughs) When that day dawns, when that curtain is permanently turned back, not only is Christ revealed in glory, but we're revealed with him in glory. In Romans 8, verse 18, it says, the sufferings of this present time, we could put in there the dark and difficult days of this present time, cannot be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We need to remember what's coming, especially when we're in the midst of those dark and dreary times. Second life application is listen to Jesus. You know, a lot of times we think about young people and we say, I wish they would listen to Jesus. Well, we need to not pretend that we don't have that same need to listen to Jesus. We need to heed his word. Sometimes we know a whole lot more about what it says than what we're living. The followers need to listen to Jesus, and I think those who are not yet followers need to listen to Jesus. If you don't know him as your savior and rescuer from sin and judgment, listen to what he says. He says, if you are weary and heavy laden, Come to me, and I will give you rest. He says to those who do not yet know him, if you are thirsty, come to me and drink. And then he has an amazing statement. He says, and take the water of life 
that will refresh your soul, your inner being, without cost. Now, there was a cost to the water of life, but the price has been paid. He paid it on the cross. If you don't yet know him, he desires to be the rescuer in your life. He died for your sins. He took your judgment. What should you do? You should believe in that. You should trust in that. You should rest on that. You rely on that. And when you do that, he becomes your rescuer. Listen to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you again for this passage that is meant to encourage our hearts so much. We think of any who may hear our voice who don't yet know Jesus in this way, that they would by faith turn to him, trust in him, count on what he did on their behalf so that they can know the God of the universe and they can get in on the fact that when Jesus' glory is revealed one day, so they might be revealed in glory. For those of us who know you, Father, what an opportunity to just praise you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.